This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Hey, Congressman. How do y'all plan on cutting Social Security this week? Sir? How do you guys plan on cutting Social Security this Congress? Uh, we're not going to cut Social Security. You're not? Not at all? Yeah. Well, what reason the age of retirement? You know, uh, that's interesting uh, that you asked that question. Uh, people come up to me, they actually don't work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's on the table you're saying? Well, you know, uh, if people want to work on it, maybe you need to give them an incentive to do it. Okay. Yeah. There's hey. a way to solve every one of these problems, by the way. I know, I know. And actually, uh, grow wealth at the same time. Mm-hmm. It just takes that right there. Thanks a lot. You just heard from Republican Rick Allen of Georgia admit that he wants to cut Social Security only a mere six or seven seconds after saying, oh, the Republican Party doesn't want to cut Social Security. That is quite the contradiction. Now, he actually thinks that he can get away with that. This is a masterclass in GOP deception, and we'll talk about how raising the retirement age is explicitly a cut to Social Security. But isn't it interesting how his justification there for wanting to raise the retirement age is, well, everyone just wants to work. Everyone's perfectly happy working until they die, which is why it's necessary for us to raise the retirement age. Except remember how just a little more than a year into the pandemic, Republicans were saying that we had to cut unemployment insurance because nobody wants to work. These small businesses can't find people to fill these positions because they're getting checks from the government. So since everyone is so lazy, we have to cut unemployment insurance. But now they're saying, well, nobody's lazy. Everybody wants to work so much. They're so enthusiastic about working until they die. They're perfectly fine if we raise the retirement age. They are so easily so deceptive. And I know that you already saw the video, but again, I just can't get over the contradiction there. Let's watch it one more time. Uh, we're not going to cut Social Security. You're not? Not at all? Yeah. What reason the age of retirement? You know, uh, that's interesting. Unbelievable unbelievable now he would argue that that's not actually a contradiction it's perfectly consistent and a cut to social security is where we simply reduce the amount of benefits people get per year except no raising the retirement age is indeed a cut to social security and he knows that but if you don't know that let matt brunig of the people's policy project explain it to you he wrote in an article back in october the social security reform discourse frequently revolves around the idea of increasing the social security retirement age but this discourse is a bit misleading in ways that tend to obfuscate what proponents of that idea are actually proposing social security does not have one retirement age it has 
has 96 retirement ages, one for each month between age 62 and 70. What people call the full retirement age, or FRA, is just a placeholder in a formula that determines the benefit level at all 96 retirement ages. People who retire at the full retirement age receive 100% of the primary insurance amount, which is a dollar figure derived from a formula applied to each individual's earnings record. People who retire before or after the FRA receive less or more than 100% of the PIA based on how far away from the FRA they are when they retire. When someone proposes increasing the retirement age to 68, all they are really proposing is to cut monthly Social Security benefits by around 7% at all 96 retirement ages. A proposal to raise the retirement age to 70 is just a proposal to cut monthly benefits by around 23% at all 96 retirement ages. None of this is about when you retire. It's just a straightforward benefit reduction being expressed in an opaque way. Now, if that was confusing to you, I think that this chart, courtesy of Matt Brunig, makes it a little bit more clear. You can see it right here. The earlier you retire, the more lifetime benefits you receive. The later you retire, the less benefits you receive. It's that simple. So they think that if they say cut Social Security, you're going to conceptualize it in a different way. So they don't say that. They don't want the negative ramifications of that to be in your mind. But when they say raise the retirement age, you don't necessarily inherently think about it as a cut when in actuality it is explicitly a cut. This is your money, by the way, even though it's taken out of your paychecks before you get to see it. This is not a tax. This is money that you gave the government for them to hold on to until you're ready to retire. And what Alan is saying here is we actually don't want to give people back that money. It's just so ridiculous. It is not acceptable. But yet, this isn't the first time that Allen has broadcasted his intent to cut Social Security. As Common Dreams reports, Allen is a member of the Republican Study Committee, a House GOP panel that released a policy agenda last year calling for gradually raising the full retirement age from 67 to 70, partially privatizing the New Deal program and means-testing benefits. Yeah, so they've made it very clear what they want to do. They don't have an agenda that is going to benefit working people. As we've seen, their agenda explicitly hurts working people. They think that people should work until they die because that money that these people paid into all their lives, well, those Republicans, they want that money. They want to spend it on things that their donors want or perhaps try to privatize the program as Byron Donalds on MSNBC advocated for they're just saying the quiet part loud. And even though they still won't say they want to cut Social Security, they'll say everything but cut. They'll use every synonym but cut. But I think it's evident at this point in time, their agenda is pretty clear. And one of the most nefarious things about their agenda is that they know that they can't get this through without Democrats fighting them, right? So what are they going to do to try to get Democrats to acquiesce, exploit the upcoming showdown over the debt ceiling? to shut down the government and possibly even default on all of our debt, which would trigger a worldwide recession, all so they can cut Social Security. It's just, it's so gross. It's so disgusting, but they're telling you who they are, and it's up to you to choose whether or not to believe them. So if you're ever wondering, why do so many older people support Republicans if they rely on Social Security? Well, it's because this deception works. They don't realize these, that these Republicans actually are coming after their Social Security 
because they say we're not going to cut Social Security and they just take them at their word. But this is deception. It's gross and it's par for the course with Republicans. So believe them when they tell you who they are because they're being very explicit here and saying they want to screw all of you out of your retirement by taking the money that is owed to you. Part of, part of the reasons our politics are inflamed is we do not have an unbiased uh, media. We don't. It's unfortunate. I'm all for a free press. Well, it needs Senator, to be more unbiased. Senator, There's look, misinformation this is, look, on both partisan, sides, but the Senator, censorship and Senator, suppression look, we're trying to primarily do issues occurs here, from fact, the left. Partisan cable. Look, you can go back on your partisan cable cocoon and talk about media bias all you want. I understand it's part of your identity. Yeah, you couldn't understand because he's talking over to me. He doesn't interview me. He argues with me. As you just saw, Ron Johnson accused Chuck Todd of being biased, and then Chuck Todd subsequently told Ron Johnson to go back to his partisan cable cocoon, and he did just that. Now, I've just got to say first and foremost that I'm actually shocked to see somebody in the mainstream media be this adversarial with someone in power, because we usually don't see that. Usually, these news pundits, especially Chuck Todd, are passive, they're deferential towards power, whereas the media is supposed to be this fourth branch of government to hold elites accountable. So when you actually see them do their job, it's pretty shocking, and I've gotta give credit where it's due, even if it pains me because I don't like Chuck Todd. He did a great job there at really exposing the hypocritical nature of Ron Johnson and other Republicans. So you're gonna see why Ron Johnson resorted to accusing Chuck Todd of bias and how that got really heated. It's because he was trying to talk about Hunter Biden, but Jared Kushner came up, and as you're going to see, Ron Johnson wasn't really sure how to respond to that, so he just kind of threw his hands up and cried bias to deflect. Let's watch. Senator, do you have a crime that you think Hunter Biden committed? Because I've yet to see anybody explain it is not a crime to make money off your last name. So, Chuck, you ought to read the Marco Polo report. Uh, where they detail all kinds of potential crimes. You know, Senator Grassley, oh, I certainly oh, oh, let me uncovered just stop you there. the potential. Uh, about, this about, is about, 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 about potential about, is about, about thirty thousand. About thirty thousand dollars. I mean, it, Chuck, 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 is it a crime to be uh, soliciting and purchasing uh, prostitution in potentially European sex trafficking operations? Is that a crime? Because Chuck Grass and I laid out about thirty thousand dollars. Uh, paid by Hunter Biden to uh, those types of, of individuals over uh, December 2018, 2019, about $30,000. This is about the same time that President Biden uh, offered to pay about $100,000 of Hunter Biden's bills. I mean, again, that's that's just some information. I, I don't know exactly here's what I don't crime. get. All right, Senator. It doesn't it doesn't really look I, on the. It, it sounds sleazy as you know. I'll what. take your I'll, t I'll, t I'll take it your word that you're ethically bothered by Hunter Biden. I'm curious, though. You seem are, to have a pattern. Are you not? I, I are seem you to have a pattern. I, I'm a journalist. I have are, to deal in facts. Are you not? Are you not I deal in facts. You, so, Senator, my question to you is, uh, I'm always worried. I, I have skepticism of both parties. I sit here with skepticism of a lot of people's work. And I'm curious, so are you, were you at all concerned? Uh, this, your Senate Democrats want to investigate Jared Kushner's uh, loan from the Qatari government when he was working in the government negotiating uh, many things in the Middle East. Are you not as concerned about, are you not concerned about that? And I say that because it seems to me if you're concerned about what Hunter Biden did, you should be equally outraged about what Jared Kushner did. I, I'm, I'm concerned about getting the truth. I don't target individuals, target individuals. You, should, I you target don't? The truth. You're targeting Hunter Biden my, my, my multiple concern, times my on this show, my, Senator. 
You're targeting an Chuck, individual. Chuck, my, my concern, my, my, you know, Chuck, you know, par part of the problem, and, and this is pretty obvious to anybody watching this, is you don't invite me on to interview me. You invite me on to argue with me. You know, I'm just trying to lay out the facts that certainly Senator Grass and I uncovered. They were suppressed. They were censored. They interfered in the 2020 election. Conservatives understand that. Unfortunately, liberals in the media don't. And that's part of the things yeah. that uh, part, part of the reasons our politics are inflamed is we do not have an unbiased uh, media. We don't. It's unfortunate. I'm all for a free press. Well, it needs Senator, to be more unbiased. Senator, There's look, misinformation is, look, on both partisan, sides, but the Senator, censorship and Senator, suppression look, we're trying to primarily do issues here in from the left. Partisan cable. Look, you can go back on your partisan cable cocoon and talk about media bias all you want. I understand it's part of your identity. Let me move to what happened in Brazil. That clip is so much funnier knowing that Ron Johnson literally did go back to his partisan cable cocoon and talked about how mean Chuck Todd was to him. It's just embarrassing. Like Republicans have absolutely no shame. Now, I love the deer in headlights look from Ron Johnson when the name of Jared Kushner came up. He just said, uh, well, I, I, you know, um, I don't like to talk about individuals, but as Chuck Todd pointed out, you're talking about Hunter Biden. So what do you mean you don't like to talk about individuals? You just don't want to talk about individuals on your team. But when it comes to Hunter Biden, well, you're trying to find some scandal to tie Biden to. And that's all you care about. Now, listen, let me be very clear about this. Ron Johnson doesn't care about Hunter Biden. Nobody cares about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is the son of a president who unethically used his name to enrich himself. I think that that is wrong. I hate nepotism, but it's something that is a very common phenomenon in the United States. However, if you do care about the Hunter Biden story, well, you should be much more outraged, not equally outraged, as Chuck Todd pointed out, but much more outraged about Jared Kushner. Now, to me, the Jared Kushner story, and we'll get to that story in the Hunter Biden scandals as well, I think that it is much more serious because Jared Kushner was a member of government. He used his position of power to further enrich himself. This is something that politicians do all the time, and it's gross. There should be much more... Um, laws preventing them from self-serving behavior, but this is a common phenomenon. But as Chuck Todd alluded to, again, if the Hunter Biden story makes you nauseous, the Jared Kushner story should make you much more nauseous. But that's not the case, and it's because Republicans don't really care about anything but getting Democrats, trying to get Joe Biden. Now, He's really stretching here, trying to implicate Joe Biden in the Hunter Biden scandals. So there's a Daily Mail article which contends that Hunter Biden paid for sex workers, and he did so by disguising the checks to sex workers as medical services payments. And there is evidence of this. That's true. But the way that Republicans are trying to tie Joe Biden to this is, well, you see, he gave his son, Hunter Biden, money at the time. So did he knowingly pay for sex workers or did he just inadvertently finance his son's um, illicit behavior? I mean, there's no evidence of this. It's certainly uh, necessary to have some sort of investigation and there is that. But to try to make this big deal of this, that's one thing. I think it's fine if you care about that. But to care about that exclusively, but turn a blind eye to the Jared Kushner behavior, 
that's where the issue comes in. Do you understand? So before we show you Ron Johnson on Fox News, let's talk about both of these scandals because they are indeed serious. And when it comes to the Hunter Biden story, there is a there there. It's just that there isn't necessarily evidence of criminality so much as there's evidence that he broke the law and could face civil penalties. We're talking about fines. But in terms of him being this like huge criminal, that's not necessarily the case. The New York Times explains the real Hunter Biden story is complex and very different in important ways from the narrative promoted by Republicans, but troubling in its own way. After his father became vice president, Hunter Biden, a 52-year-old Yale-educated lawyer, forged business relationships with foreign interests that brought him millions of dollars, raised questions about whether he was cashing in on his family name, set off alarms among government officials about potential conflicts of interest, and provided Republicans an opening for years years of attacks on his father. Investigators have poured over documents related to and questioned witnesses about his overseas business dealings. They include his role on the board of Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company led by an oligarch who at the time was under investigation for corruption, a position that Hunter accepted while his father as vice president was overseeing Obama administration policy in Ukraine. They also include his equity stake in a Chinese business venture and his failed joint venture with a Chinese tycoon who had well-connected Americans in both parties. At one point, he gave Hunter Biden a large diamond as a gift, but was later detained by Chinese authorities. So without question, Hunter Biden is the beneficiary of nepotism, as many children of presidents are. And let's be very clear, he got the job at Burisma because Burisma wanted to influence Joe Biden, the vice president. Now, whether or not that had any influence on Joe Biden, I think is worth investigating. It's worth looking into. But in terms of actual criminal wrongdoing, there is evidence, but it's not the evidence that the Republican Party is focused on. It's more civil offenses. And Delaware's Attorney General David Weiss, who has the authority to charge Hunter Biden, is less focused on the more salacious elements of the Hunter Biden scandal and is more fixated on his inability to meet tax filing deadlines or whether or not he falsely claimed that $30,000 in business expenses weren't actually for business expenses. And he also allegedly lied while filling out a form to purchase a handgun in 2018. So in terms of whether or not Hunter Biden is going to go to jail for any of this, it seems really unlikely. The actual things that they can prove that he broke the law on reportedly are tax things. He'll get a slap on the wrist or face a penalty. And listen, I think that you can absolutely think that Hunter Hunter Biden's behavior is unethical and wrong. But here's the thing. If you're going to be mad about that, you've also got to be mad about Jared Kushner, whose actions were exponentially more unethical. Now, I'll link you to a Washington Post article that fully details the scandal that Chuck Todd referenced, but there's more than just that one instance of Jared Kushner using his influence to personally enrich himself. The Washington Post reports, in December of 2016, as Kushner worked on Trump's transition team, he met with representatives of a Chinese insurance firm regarding potentially investing in the property the New York Times reported. Kushner also 
met with a Russian banker but told Congress that family business was not discussed, although the bank has said they talked about promising business lines and sectors. Jared Kushner played a significant role in policy affecting Qatar. He had helped persuade Trump to strengthen ties with Saudi Arabia during a May 2017 visit to the Arab nation. The day after the Trump administration ended, Kushner created a private equity firm for which he obtained a $2 billion investment from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. The fund is headed by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who the CIA has said ordered the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post contributing columnist. But I'm sure that all of this was just a coincidence. Now, look, will we find evidence of a quid pro quo between Jared Kushner and these Arab countries? Probably not, because most of these politicians are savvy enough to cover their tracks. And even when there is a conflict of interest that's incredibly brazen, our laws with regard to corruption are so lax that it's usually not sufficient to prosecute. So I don't think that he's going to get into trouble. And this is a common phenomenon in the United States. But what I am saying is that if you find the Hunter Biden story absolutely scandalous, but the Jared Kushner story doesn't bother you, you're a hack. You're a hack. Now, look, I, for one, don't play team politics. And I think that every single presidential administration, along with all of their shitty children, should go straight from the White House to The Hague until we hear from the individuals who their policies affected, both domestic and foreign. So all of the victims who had families die in drone strikes from these presidents should be able to come forward and testify against our U.S. presidents. Um, I think that everyone in the U.S. government who has invested in these companies that they're supposed to be regulating, Democrat or Republican, should either be impeached, removed from Congress forcibly, or face jail time because that is deeply, deeply unethical and corrupt. I think that you shouldn't be able to vote on policies if a particular industry who's affected by those policies donated to your campaign. That's a conflict of interest. So there is an issue with corruption in the United States. But these Republicans, they're not consistent like I am or like you are. They don't actually care about the specific details. It's all about team sports. So if they can get the Democrats for something and somehow tie Joe Biden to the Hunter Biden scandal and claim, well, was that money that Hunter Biden was given by his father used for sex workers? Was that intentional? Is, you know, Joe Biden funding the illicit lifestyle of his son? If they can do that, that's all that they care about at the end of the day. They don't actually care about the substance. It's just about team sports. It's just about politics, not the details. They don't care about corruption or conflicts of interest or nepotism or ethics violations, because if they did, they would be more consistent on this issue. But with that being said, I do want to talk about how Ron Johnson decided to go back to Fox News after Chuck Todd told him to. And he basically just whined about how mean Chuck Todd was to him. And he tried to bring up the Hunter Biden story while not addressing Jared Kushner, because, of course, let's watch. What were you trying to say about 30,000? Because that particular point was when he really leaned in. Yeah, you couldn't understand because he's talking over to me. He doesn't interview me. He argues with me. But Hunter Biden uh, and we, we have records that show about $30,000 were paid to prostitutes. Uh, probably uh, individuals associated with the Eastern uh, European sex trafficking ring. Uh, $30,000, that same time period, in, in the midst of that five-month period, over two months, Joe Biden committed to apparently wire Hunter Biden about $100,000. So was the President of the United States, or at that point in time, the former Vice President, uh, financing Hunter Biden's uh, illegal activity with, uh, with prostitutes? 
I love how he's like, oh, well, see, as soon as I brought up this scandal involving Hunter Biden and the specifics of it, that's when, you know, I was I was shut down by Chuck Todd. But you did the same exact thing with regard to the Jared Kushner story, which you conspicuously did not mention here. So, again, Ron Johnson is a hack. He does not care about what Hunter Biden or Jared Kushner is doing. This is all about team politics, and he's trying to score one over against the other team. That's literally all that this is about. Anytime a Republican brings up Hunter Biden, I think that you can sufficiently conclude that they don't actually care about that story. Nobody cares about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden was not a government official. Jared Kushner was. But if you care about Hunter Biden, as I repeated earlier, you really have to care about the Jared Kushner story. And really, to make a logical leap, all of the instances of corruption in governments. It's frustrating to me how so many Republicans will point out Democratic Party corruption, but not mention corruption on their own side. And to be fair, Democrats do that too, right? But at least some Democrats are at least more logically consistent. For example, Ilhan Omar was talking about how there needs to be an investigation into Biden's mishandling of classified documents. So all that we're asking here is for a little bit of consistency. But the reason why we're not getting that is because, again, these politicians don't care about that. They don't care about the details of the story. They just care about the political angle. That's it, period, full stop. And Chuck Todd, I think, brilliantly demonstrated that in this interview. So I hope that we see more of this from pundits because that was very effective at pointing out the hypocrisy of some of these Republican politicians. What do you think of that uh, lady squ uh, squirting the hose? On the homeless lady. Um, I think it was a dude, right? It dude was squirting a dude. It was a guy yeah. squirting the... I think everybody woman. is at the edge right. of their yeah. frustration. Like, it's true. like, you could say, my gosh, that's heartless. Well, maybe that person gets up every day and sees human shit on his, on his front door. You just watched Fox News host Greg Gutfeld justify violence against an unhoused woman. He just said that on national television. It's not necessarily below him, but still it's pretty shocking to see someone think that that was okay. Now, that clip that we just watched was actually the culmination of a long rant that Greg Gutfeld went on where he said more disparaging and incorrect things about unhoused people. And we'll play more from that segment, but first I want to give you some additional context in case you didn't see that clip that went viral. So the piece of shit who you saw in that video spraying the woman is actually the owner of a gallery in San Francisco named Collier Gwynn. And he pretended to be sorry, but of course only after he went viral. Quote, what they saw is very regrettable. I feel awful, not just because I want to get out of trouble, but because I'd put a tremendous amount of effort into helping this woman. Sure, we totally believe that you want to help her after we saw the look in your eyes as you sprayed her. He felt no remorse whatsoever, didn't even see her as a fellow human being. He treated her worse than people treat stray dogs or cats. Just, I'm not buying it. But he spoke to local reporter K of KPIX, uh, Betty Yu, and you're gonna see the same excuses, and um, it's just, it it's gross, but let's listen. I'm out there once again, cleaning her mess, washing it down, trying to clean up stuff, and I just snapped. I was watering and around her, and I just snapped when she went off in her belligerent, you know, tongues and stuff. And I just snapped and I pulled the hose up higher and I sprayed her. 
And when I look at myself on the film, I can't even believe that that's me. But I didn't know what else to do. It was getting so frustrating. And I know that that's why I snapped. And, you know, I've never done anything like that to a human being. I don't feel that way. I've been, you know, I've always been called the, the, uh, the fix-it guy who tried to bring both sides together and hear the stories. And uh, we tried really hard. And um, I did something terrible. It was awful. And I, I can see it. I mean, nobody can see it clearer than I can. Not buying it not buying it at all. He's only sorry that he got caught. That's evidence because somebody who just momentarily had a lapse in their judgment and got frustrated would have just went sprayed her real quick, right? That's not justifiable too. That would be a controversy in and of itself if he only did that. But he was sitting there spraying her with a look in his eyes that you can just tell he thought that this was not a fellow human being. She was scum and this is how we treat scum. We spray them with water hoses. That's the look in his eye. So uh, I'm sorry, I'm not buying a single word that this individual is saying. And the reporter talked to him, but has any reporter spoke to the woman who he assaulted and also insulted? He also tried to justify this action by claiming that she was psychotic. And it's just, I, I have to really spell this out because the irony is going to be lost on some people, I'm sure. The man who was spraying another human being who he believed to be a nuisance with the water hose, claimed that she's the one who's psychotic, not him. It's just, it's so unbelievable. The details of this story are genuinely infuriating, and we need to get the perspective from the woman. This man who assaulted that woman needs to be held accountable, because this is not okay. This is not okay. Now, the San Francisco police chief, Bill Scott, tweeted about this, saying the incident on Montgomery Street has been transferred to San Francisco Police Department Investigations Bureau. The process from here is to collect evidence, interview witnesses, develop the case, and present it to the district attorney. Now, that response to me is bizarre, because if you, on video, caught somebody decking another person, they would immediately be handcuffed and taken to jail. But because he's spraying her with a water hose and because she's unhoused, it seems like this isn't taken as seriously when, what are we doing? He should at least go to jail. But nope, there's got to be an investigation to determine that, yep, spraying an unhoused person with a water hose is bad. It's just, it's shocking to me. Now, according to the uh, SF list, he could face a battery charge, which he should. You should be legally held accountable for doing that to another human being. But people who saw that video were absolutely outraged and he hasn't faced legal accountability, but the public backlash has absolutely been swift and severe. KPIX reporter Betty Yu writes on Twitter, the owner said he's flooded with death threats and his business has been vandalized since the video went viral. Now she shared a video of him getting confronted by someone and that video is very, very satisfying to watch. You, that, you, it doesn't matter who doesn't get no help, you don't spray people down with water hose, right? 
You can take that with your white privilege and go somewhere. There's nothing on the planet Earth that requires me to spray somebody down with a water hole. You're right. I'm right here. I wish you sprayed me down with a water hole. Not all heroes wear capes, but that man who confronted him is a hero. He said everything that I was feeling while watching that video. I don't care what you have to say, what justification you have to use. That's not acceptable. You can't spray another human being with a hose because you want to shoo them away. It's just people in this country, the mentality, and this man, this monster is a microcosm of a broader issue, but people in the United States, they just don't necessarily, and I'm generalizing here, not everyone feels this way, but they don't really view unhoused people as people. If you watch Fox News segments, and we've talked about this before, the way that they talk about them is as if they are animals, and they're like rats, and you've got to find some ways to get them to go away. It's just, it's so sad. It's deeply, deeply heartbreaking. But I want to get back to that Fox News segment because you saw what the end of that segment was, but let's watch what he said before he was asked about that by Geraldo Rivera, because what he says about unhoused people is just deeply moronic. I don't know how else to describe it. I can't be more charitable than that. I would support this. Uh, it's what I've been talking about for a while, an autonomous zone for people who wish to be homeless. This is where you can go and practice this experimental lifestyle, right? And if, uh, if you're back in the city panhandling, uh, we'll take you back there or we'll get you help. But you're going to go back to that place mm -hmm. because that's where it's legal. That's where it's legal. And it could get really ugly and gross. Yeah. It could be a terror. It could be like the road warrior times five. But you know what? That's what they want in the city. They cannot live on your street. Right. They have to right. ex exercise their lifestyle somewhere else. And we will help you. We will help you. I will help you. Okay. Well, what do you think of that uh, lady squ uh, squirting the hose? And you know what he says next. He goes on to justify an assault on an unhoused woman. Now, what he said there is wrong because he's pretty explicitly suggesting that people choose to be unhoused when, no, nobody chooses to sleep on the streets. It's not like, oh, this is some new quirky lifestyle that I'm choosing to adopt because I'm different. You become unhoused because you lose everything i just i feel like we shouldn't have to explain this right i get that he's insulated in this bubble and he's really wealthy but all you have to do is look at the situation and see that these are not people who enjoy being in that predicament who choose to be in that predicament and his solution is to round up all the homeless people and put them into one autonomous zone because he thinks that if they all lived in their own filth then they'd choose to not be in this predicament. They choose to do better for themselves. It's not like they're making this choice. They have nowhere else to go. You can't Thanos snap them out of existence, Greg. But that's what some of these people want. And there is a solution, but that's not the solution. The solution is housing. Give unhoused people houses and the problem is solved. And if you think that that's too expensive, well, let me point you to a 2019 article from Vox that illustrated how it's actually more cost efficient because believe it or not, trying to criminalize homelessness and police them out of existence is actually more expensive than housing them. Pawning off homeless people on emergency rooms, paying for anti-homeless architecture, all of this costs money. So all that money can be used to house them and then everyone's happy. But yet people try to concoct these weird solutions or pseudo solutions because they're not really solutions where they're like, oh, just round them all up 
and um, put them in an autonomous zone or push them into a different area out of sight, out of mind. I just don't want to see them. Again, we're talking about human beings here. I can't stress that enough. These are actual human beings just like you and I. They have desires. They feel pain. They suffer just like all of us. They're human beings. So as we have these conversations, we need to remember that. And we heard from the uh, gallery owner here, but we didn't get to hear from that woman. I don't know if any reporter got to speak with her. I couldn't find an interview with her, but we need the perspective of unhoused people because they're not just choosing to annoy you or be visual, um, visually displeasing. Like they're in this predicament because of the system that we live in. And living on the streets only exacerbates the problems that they were already dealing with. Urban Institute explains, people living on the street for long periods often suffer from co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. They are criminalized for being homeless, racking up nuisance crimes, such as trespassing, panhandling, public drinking and urination, and sleeping in public spaces, which can lead to a street-to-jail cycle that is hard to break. Street life is punishing. People are frequently victimized, adding to a lifetime of trauma that can come with being poor. Chronic physical health problems like hypothermia are sometimes a consequence of homelessness, while others such as diabetes are difficult to treat when sleeping on the street. So this is what they're dealing with. So I don't think it's too much to ask to have just a little bit of empathy. But no, the response from Fox News and people like Collier Gwynn is to treat them like animals or worse than animals and spray them with water, shoo them away, when the solution is pretty clear. Give them housing and that's it, it's solved. I mean, I feel like it seems a little bit like an oversimplification to say that, but it really is that simple. Housing the unhoused is going to solve this issue. It's a win-win-win. They win, we win, and these people who hate unhoused people win because the issue is solved there. They won't be loitering on the streets in front of businesses like the nuisance that you think they are. So housing is the issue. And we just need to try to recalibrate this conversation so it goes towards the solution rather than the demonization and the lack of empathy. But, you know, this is kind of the environment that we're living in where we don't necessarily view fellow human beings as equals, we view them as inferiors. Even if we're all being exploited by the system, the people who are the least fortunate, who find themselves in the worst predicament imaginable, they're still demonized by folks just a little bit more advantaged than them. And you would think that there would be at least a little bit more solidarity, but there's nothing. There's, there's nothing there, and it's really disheartening to see. So this whole story is depressing, but nonetheless, um, when people like Greg Gutfeld tell you who they are and they say we should basically be fine with violence against unhoused people understand that they're telling you that they're pieces of shit so believe them when they say that they are that The Daily Beast has the scoop on a new story pertaining to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert's ongoing beef. And this one might be the funniest one yet because it truly demonstrates how hilariously immature these individuals are. So they reportedly nearly got into a screaming match in the bathroom 
on the first day of Congress. The Daily Beast explains, on the first day of Congress this year, January 3rd, the mounting tension between Green and Boebert reached its boiling point. According to multiple sources, the two women were nearly in a screaming match in the Speaker's lobby's ladies' room just off the House floor. Green questioned Boebert's loyalty to McCarthy, and after a few words were exchanged, Boebert stormed out, a source familiar with the fight told the Daily Beast. According to another source familiar, while in the bathroom, Green asked Boebert, you were okay taking millions of dollars from McCarthy, but you refused to vote for him for Speaker, Lauren. The first source said Green was in a stall and upon coming out, confronted Boebert about taking money from McCarthy for her re-election and then turning against McCarthy when it came time to vote. The Colorado Republican was allegedly unaware that Green was also in the bathroom at the time. That's when Lauren said, don't be ugly, the first source said before she, in the words of the source, ran out like a little schoolgirl. So these are the type of individuals who are making it to Congress, people with the high school mentality who still resort to high school tactics where they talk smack in the bathroom. It's just it's so embarrassing, nevertheless, incredibly predictable and exactly what I'd expect from these two individuals who are typically pretty unhinged. Now, there was somebody who was, I believe, in the bathroom there to witness this all, Democrat Debbie Dingell, although she's not dishing on the details because she says, uh, quote, what happens in the, in the ladies' room stays in the ladies' room. Okay, fair enough. Now, look, let's, let's circle back to reality here, okay? Because these types of stories are fun, uh, but these stories, I think, prove an important point, and that is that these individuals who are this unhinged and immature, they hold an immense amount of power. And what they do greatly affects your life. Marjorie Taylor Greene was assigned to the Homeland Security Committee, so she'll be overseeing policy regarding foreign policy and national security, despite the fact that she's not just unhinged, but she's personally invested in the defense industry. So it's fun to laugh at these types of stories with salacious headlines, but I want to remind you every single time we talk about these types of stories that these individuals have real power that can greatly affect you, usually for the negative. Now, the way that these individuals can do the most harm within this session, at least, is using the entire U.S. economy as leverage to get what they want. And it seems as if the entire GOP caucus has collectively agreed that Social Security is their number one target. But don't take it from me. Take it straight from the horse's mouth. How do you all plan on cutting Social Security this week? Sir? How do you guys plan on cutting Social Security this Congress? Uh, we're not going to cut Social Security. You're not? Not at yeah. all? Well, what reason the age of retirement? You know, uh, that's interesting uh, that you ask that question. Uh, people come up to me, they actually don't work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's on the table you're saying? Well, you know, uh, if people want to work on it, maybe you need to give them an incentive to do it. Okay. That was Republican lawmaker Rick Allen from Georgia, and he kind of just said the quiet part loud, and I did a full breakdown on what he said and why it's harmful yesterday, so check that out. I'll link to it down below. But he's not the first Republican to broadcast their intent to cut Social Security. Now, oftentimes, they don't explicitly say, we're going to cut Social Security, but they'll use coded language to suggest that that's what they want to do. Will reform entitlements or raise the retirement age when in actuality, that just means they want to cut social security.
Now, even Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republican Party and Speaker of the House, said the same thing, essentially. And what makes it worse is what he is implicitly saying he's willing to do to get what he wants. Truthout reports last fall, then House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said that the debt limit legislation was a time for lawmakers to eliminate some waste. He was likely referring to the GOP's plan to cut Social Security and Medicare, two of the U.S.'s most effective anti-poverty programs, which Republicans have been attacking for months. So within the context of talking about the debt limit, knowing that you have to raise the debt ceiling in order to stop the United States government from defaulting on its debt, which would be catastrophic, he is going to use that opportunity as leverage in order to push through something that would harm the American people, as he calls it, eliminating the waste. As I like to call it, a life-saving program like Social Security that you've paid into for your entire life. That's not the government's money, that's your money. And these Republicans are broadcasting that not only do they want to take your money away from you, but they want to hold the entire U.S. economy hostage in order to do that. And if you think about it, Kevin McCarthy strategically has an incentive to use the debt ceiling as his moment to push this through because... This is a divided Congress. So if they just passed a clean bill saying we want to raise the retirement age from 67 to 70, well, that's not going to pass the Senate and Biden could certainly veto it. But what he can do is play a game of chicken with the Democratic Party and say, listen, we want this, which is going to be seemingly a cut to Social Security. And if you don't give it to us, we are willing to not raise the debt ceiling and have the entire economy collapse as a result. So the question is, who's going to budge first? Now, the White House is already saying that they're not going to play this game and they warned that this is not going to be something that they accept. But when we're talking about what will inevitably be a dangerous game of chicken, ask yourself this question. Which party is crazy enough to actually let the U.S. default on its debt? The Democratic Party or the Republican Party? The party where they're literally yelling at each other, nearly yelling at each other in bathrooms. The Republican Party is absolutely willing to do this. And I don't think people fully understand the ramifications if this actually were to happen. So let me play a clip from Congressman Ro Khanna, who was on Democracy Now! And I think that he eloquently explained why this would be catastrophic for a plethora of reasons. It is important for people watching to understand this is debt that the United States already owes. We're not debating how much should we spend in the future. This is obligations that uh, the United States government has. I believe that in this country we should pay our debts, uh, and this should not even be a debate. The consequences of not doing that will be spiking interest rates at a time where the economy already is vulnerable. The consequences will mean that some Medicare checks, Social Security checks, uh, food stamp checks will not go out. Uh, so if push comes to shove, I believe the administration should act uh, within their own power, such as increasing uh, the interest rate on bonds uh, to be able to raise revenue. There are other avenues. But really, the Congress should do its simple task of paying past debts. But we're not seeing that going in that direction. Um, I mean, isn't that what the conservative Republicans and a number of Democrats actually want, is to go after Social Security, to go after Medicare, to privatize? And this will be used as a way to do that. Yes, this is what the Freedom Caucus wants. 
of course, the consequence of that is also a massive uh, default of uh, the U.S. economy and higher interest rates, probably a severe recession uh, in jolting the global economy. But they don't care. They don't they don't care about breaking the institutions, breaking the economy. You know, if this was just a debate about Social Security spending. I'm for increasing the spending uh, for John Larson's act that would actually increase benefits and not tax some of the benefits of Social Security for working class families. We can have that debate and they can say why they want to cut spending. But what they're doing is saying they want to hijack the entire U.S. economy, subject it to collapse in order to get their goals. And it's going to be an ugly debate. And frankly, Kevin McCarthy is going to be in a very difficult position because they may threaten his speakership if he does what's right for the country. Yeah. So it's going to get ugly. And there were other Republicans on Fox News saying, look, the full faith and credit of the United States is on the line. So, of course, Democrats, they're going to give us what we want, because, again, this is the only way they can get something passed in this session. But. The one thing, sickeningly so, that we have working in our favor is U.S. corruption. Corruption runs rampant in the U.S. Congress. I'd say that 98% of lawmakers are corrupt and exclusively beholden to their donors as opposed to their constituents. Now, the reason why in this instance it may benefit us and avoid catastrophe is that the donors of the Republican Party would not want to see the United States government default on its debt because that would be catastrophic to them. So that's the one thing that is kind of working in our favor. If the Republican Party is going to listen to anyone, we know it's going to be their donors. But at the same time, are enough of them crazy enough to hold the entire economy hostage and potentially tank it in order to get what they want, which is cuts to Social Security and Medicare? Yes. So this is going to be something that I want everyone to pay attention to. The debt ceiling showdown is going to be the most consequential moment of Congress when when it inevitably comes up and people need to pay attention to it. So understand that all of these stories that we cover where we're talking about the dumb things that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates says, these are all pointing you towards their character and what they're willing to do and their temperaments. And as you can see, individuals like Matt Gates, they would be willing to go to the mat to get their agenda accomplished, even if that means throwing their own constituents under the bus. I mean, they've done it multiple times. Matt Gates voted against capping the cost of insulin. So they're psychopaths. And that's what I really want to reiterate when we talk about these videos and stress when we talk about the dumb things and the more I guess, entertaining headlines about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, who are arguing in the bathroom. These are the people who control what happens within the next couple of years, and you have to pay attention to it because it affects you greatly. And if you don't, you do so, you do so at your own peril. So let's all make sure that we are savvy consumers of media, and we acknowledge that these folks, they could f*** some shit up if they really wanted to. And that's what I want to leave you with. We still don't agree on getting rid of the filibuster. That's correct. Thank you. I, I was, I was. It's a big club and you ain't in it. That was positively revolting. You just watched Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema high five each other over their obstruction. They're essentially celebrating the fact that they blocked the codification of voting rights or Roe v. Wade or didn't make the child tax credit permanent in the presence of these billionaires, some of whom I assume are their donors 
and it's just really gross and it's a reminder that these politicians they don't represent you the people at that event are who our governments represents because our government is incapable of meeting the basic needs of its citizens and it's because they're not representing you and i they're representing those elites at that summit in davos and let's be clear about something here even though Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema were more than happy to assume the role of rotating villain, there would be someone else to take their place in the event they weren't willing to play that part. So there's always going to be a Joe Lieberman, a Joe Manchin, there's going to be some all-too-powerful parliamentarian or this excuse that the Republicans won't go along with us even though we control both branches of government, and it's because our government doesn't represent us. They represent those folks, the elites at Davos. And this is just kind of a reminder that this is the way our government operates. But it's not surprising when you live in a late stage capitalist society where if you have money, that directly translates into you having power. As CNBC reports, U.S. lawmakers quietly took part in a private ritzy lunch atop the World Economic Forum on Monday, featuring dozens of influential business leaders, according to people with direct knowledge of the matter. Lawmakers in attendance included members of the U.S. congressional delegation taking part in the annual confab for the elite and wealthy in Davos, including Senators Joe Manchin, Chris Coons, Kirsten Sinema, and a few members of the House of Representatives, these people explained. Republican Georgia Governor Brian Kemp also attended the event, one of the people said. Coons and Manchin each separately addressed the crowd of corporate leaders at the lunch, said an attendee who declined to be identified speaking about a private gathering. Coons told CNBC on the sidelines before the lunch that members of the congressional delegation were heading to the lunch with about 50 CEOs. He didn't say which executives were scheduled to attend. Now, in case you're wondering why senators like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, and Chris Coons were part of the U.S. delegation, well, it's because even though almost all of American politicians are beholden to their corporate donors, these are the individuals who are the most shameless about their corrupt behavior. As Patriotic Millionaires put it, Davos is the world's largest and most prestigious gathering of powerful people pretending to do good while actually protecting the wealth of the richest. Could it be any more fitting that Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are part of the U.S. delegation? Exactly. Now, Cosmer should point out, after Manchin and Sinema chose to stand with the Republican Party and refused to repeat the filibuster, the child tax credit expired and childhood poverty increased 41%, which meant 3.7 million more children were forced into poverty. But yeah, high fives all around. Horrid. So it's infuriating because these elitist politicians and business leaders and wealthy people, they get together, they plot and scheme about how they're going to rig the rules of the game to further benefit and enrich themselves. And if you point that out, apparently you're wrong to do that? I mean, CBS actually thought it was a good idea to put out this tweet. The World Economic Forum's annual meeting has increasingly become a target of bizarre claims from a growing chorus of commentators who believe the forum involves a group of elites manipulating global events for their own benefit. But as this Twitter user pointed out in response, they literally admit that this is what they do. He says it's literally the first paragraph on their website. It's bizarre that people believe a bunch of billionaires get together with politicians for kicks and their website reads, the forum engages the foremost political business, cultural, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. It's called global capitalism. This is how things function. 
when you have these private lunches between business leaders, 50 CEOs, as Chris Coons estimated, and sitting senators, they're not just talking about the weather. They're not talking about what games they're playing and how far they got in Elden Ring. They're talking about policies that are going to further enrich them and allow them to dodge their taxes. But I want to be fair to Davos because it's not like every single thing that they produced was bad because in the year 2019, well, for some reason, they invited some people who were willing to call them out and confront them to their faces. And that includes historian Rutger Bregman. Need I remind you that on a stage, he actually called for taxing the wealthy in front of a lot of very wealthy people. This is my first time at Davos and, uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, 1,500 private jets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters, firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water, right? <laughs> there, was, there was only one panel, actually. Thank well, we've had two, you're the second well, of well, our panelists. There, there so was only one panel. Let's go there. One. one panel hidden away in the media center that was actually about tax avoidance. Yeah. I, was about, I was one of the 15 participants. So <laughs> something needs to change here. I mean, ten, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes, mm -hmm. taxes, taxes. We need to, mm -hmm. I mean, just two days ago, there was a billionaire in here, uh, what's his name, Michael Dell. And uh, he asked the question like, Name me one country where a top marginal tax rate of 70% has actually worked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a historian. The United States, that's where it has actually worked. In the 1950s, during <laughs> Republican President Eisenhower, you know, the war veteran, the top marginal tax rate in the US was 91% mm -hmm. for people like Michael Dell. You know, the top estate tax for people like Michael Dell was more than 70%. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on, it's we gotta be talking about taxes. Yikes. That's it, taxes, 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 all the rest is bullshit. In my opinion. Yeah. So he exposed all of these elitist pricks for who they are. This is nothing more than a circle jerk for elites to try to make themselves feel better while not actually addressing the elephant in the room, not actually talking about the ways in which they can better the world. And that is giving up the wealth that they're hoarding, that many of them stole from their employees through exploited labor. Now, Rutger wasn't the only individual in attendance because on that panel was also the executive director from Oxfam back in 2019. And she also said the same thing that Rutger said. But this next clip is really interesting because you're going to see some pushback once one of these elitist pricks had their bubble bursted. So you're going to hear from the CFO of Yahoo. And what he said was just perfectly illustrative of how idiotic this event is. We have a tax system that leaks so much that allows $170 billion of money every year to be taken to tax havens and to be denied the developing countries that need that money most. So we have to look at the business model and we have to look at the role of governments to tax and plow back money into people's lives. I have to say, honestly, this is a very one-sided panel. The U.S. basically has the lowest unemployment rate ever, the lowest black unemployment rate ever, 
lowest youth unemployment ever. Uh, we've actually reduced poverty around the world. No one's talking about that at all. So I'd like for the panel to talk about beyond taxes, which every one of you have talked about. The only thing you've talked about in this whole panel on inequality, what can we really do to solve and help solve inequality over time beyond taxes? The gentleman who talked about, who said we've just talked taxes and that jobs are there and there's low and unemployment rates are low. Let me tell you something. We're talking about jobs, but the quality of those jobs. And we also work with poultry workers in the richest country in the world, the United States. Poultry workers. These are women who are cutting the chickens and packing them and we buy them in the supermarkets. Dolores, one woman we work with there, told us that she and her co-workers have to wear diapers to work because they are not allowed toilet breaks. This is in the richest country in the world. That's not a dignified job. Those are the jobs we are being told about, that globalization is bringing jobs. The quality of the jobs matter. It matters. These are not jobs of dignity. In many countries, workers no longer have a, a voice. They are not allowed to unionize. They are not allowed to negotiate for, for salaries. So we're talking about jobs, but jobs that bring dignity. We are talking about healthcare. The World Bank has told us that 3.4 billion people who earn $5.5 a day are on the verge, are just a medical bill away from sinking into poverty. They don't have health care. They are just a crop failure away from sinking back into poverty. They have no crop insurance. So don't tell me about low levels of unemployment. You are counting the wrong things. You're not counting dignity of people. You're counting exploited people. I, I wanna... That was a mic drop moment. Now, that CFO of Yahoo gave us some insight into how these elitists and rich people actually think. They claim to be concerned about these issues. He claims to be concerned about inequality, but only tell me how we can fix inequality without raising taxes. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. The crux of the issue of global income and wealth inequality is rich people like him hoarding wealth, oftentimes wealth that they stole from their employees. So it's like, imagine if you saw somebody starving to death on the street and you had a giant uh, plate of food in your hand and they said, help me, I'm starving. And you said, well, tell me how I can help you without giving you food. That's kind of the same thing. Maybe not the best analogy, but you get what I'm saying, right? They don't want their taxes raised. So they virtue signal and pretend to care about these issues that they bring up at these events. But in actuality, they pay politicians. I should say they bribe politicians, donate to their campaigns, hire lobbyists to stop these politicians from implementing policies that would ameliorate some of these issues that they're talking about, like global poverty, anthropogenic climate change, income and wealth inequality. But that's why politicians like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, and Chris Coons get invited to these private lunches more often than individuals like Rutger Bregman. It's because they tell these elites what they want to hear. They make promises to these elites behind closed doors and never let the media hear what they're saying. And it's because they are indeed 
plotting and scheming. It is a conspiracy, but a real conspiracy. We're not talking about Illuminati. We're talking about wealthy and powerful people who control the levers of government, either by proxy of their puppeteer or puppet politicians, I should say, as they be the puppeteers, or by just being members of powerful governments themselves. So it's important that we point this out every single time Davos has an event because it's disgusting and elitist and all of these rich pricks know exactly what needs to happen if they want to solve these issues that they're addressing here. It's called tax the rich, but if they keep passing policies that devastate the working class and keep the needy hungry, well then poor folks and working people aren't going to have anything left to eat but the rich. So they should be mindful of this fact. 20-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg was arrested in Germany while protesting the expansion of an open-pit coal mine, and for absolutely no reason whatsoever, right-wing influencers are choosing to turn this arrest into a conspiracy theory. So on Twitter yesterday, the word staged was trending, and individuals like Ian Miles Chong made tweets like this, saying, yes, the Greta Thunberg arrest was staged for the establishment media. And this is the video that supposedly proves that her arrest was staged. Let's watch. The video that he shared debunks his own claim because after she was done talking to the press, they took her away. She was actually arrested. Now, I'll admit that the video is bizarre. It's weird to see somebody who the police arrested stop and let the press get photographs of them. But this is a celebrity. Do you think that the police are going to crack skulls while a bunch of cameras are watching? I mean, sure, in the United States, they are that brazen to do that. But when you have a celebrity in custody, this is why they allow this to happen. I'm not making excuses for it. I think that this behavior is really weird and they should treat everyone who they arrest equally, not that they should be arrested in the first place. But this doesn't prove that the event was staged. But somebody tried to explain this to Ian. And as you can see, it didn't go too well. They wrote, it wasn't a staged arrest. They just let the press take photos. I'll agree it's odd, but the arrest was real. They knew this footage would also get out. But Ian just responded by saying, the entire protest was staged. So that's what happens when you try to engage in good faith with a right-winger. It goes in one ear and out the other. And I just feel like these right-wing influencers don't really understand how power works because Ian claimed that this whole arrest was staged for establishment media. But what's the core function of establishment media? Their goal is to make money if we're talking about these capitalist institutions, right? Mainstream media. So the only reason why they talk about Greta is because she brings eyeballs, because she's popular with young people, right? And they want to draw in more viewers. But ultimately, if push comes to shove, they're siding with the fossil fuel industry that Greta Thunberg is speaking out against because those are the individuals who pay for advertising dollars on these networks. So I just don't understand if he understands the way that power works and whose side the establishment media is on, because I promise you it's not on the side of climate activists. Maybe some individual activists like Greta Thunberg can successfully draw in eyeballs, 
but that doesn't mean that they're on her side. But either way, that's besides the point. These police officers, they were absolutely brutal, as police often are, and even though you didn't see it, Greta Thunberg experienced it firsthand. As Common Dreams explains, Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg was among the demonstrators detained by German police on Tuesday while protesting the destruction of the village Lutzeroth to expand an open pit coal mine. After arriving in Germany last week to support local campaigners battling the expansion, 20-year-old Thunberg joined activists staging a sit-in nearly six miles from the Lutzeroth at the edge of the mine owned by energy utility RWE. Greta Thunberg was part of a group of activists who rushed towards the edge. However, she was then stopped and carried by us with this group out of the immediate danger area to establish their identity, a spokesperson for Aiken police told Reuters, noting that one activist jumped into the mine. As Common Dreams previously reported while visiting Lutzeroth on Friday, Thunberg said it was horrible to see what's happening here and called out the outrageous police violence occurring in the area. Quote, we expect to show what people power looks like, what democracy looks like, she vowed. When governments and corporations are acting like this, destroying the environment, putting countless people at risk, the people step up. Now, to demonstrate what she's talking about here, police were shoving activists when they were binded together, including Greta Thunberg, because they were trying to forcibly remove them from this area where they were staging this protest. Let's watch. Now, what you saw there didn't even scratch the surface. As the New York Times reports, on Saturday, an estimated 15,000 climate activists, including Greta Thunberg, staged a march in the area with police using water cannons and nightsticks to prevent protesters from charging the site. So police expectedly brutalized peaceful protesters. And this is a common phenomenon around the globe. We often see indigenous people who are protesting, protecting their own water, like at Standing Rock, and people of color, they bear the brunt of the brutalization. Now, Greta Thunberg saw that herself, but I'm assuming that because she brought a lot of eyeballs to this protest and got people to talk about this, maybe when the cameras were on, the police were more restrained, knowing that this would be broadcasted and knowing that it would be a scandal. So contrary to popular belief, these protesters were brutalized and the police were absolutely ruthless. But in spite of that, the protesters were relentless despite knowing what they would be met with. What's interesting about this is in order to expand the coal pit, they had to hollow out a small town and the protesters were trying to prevent that from happening. And their tactics had been successful only up until a certain point. As the New York Times explains, in a matter of days this past week, more than 1,000 police officers cleared out the hundreds of climate activists who had sworn to protect the small village, once home to 90 people, but no church, which was scheduled to be raised as part of a sprawling open pit coal mine in western Germany. For years, environmental activists had hoped to forestall the fate of Lutzerath, possibly the last of hundreds of villages in Germany, to fall to open pit mining since World War II. For a while, it seemed that the activists would succeed. 
but this year the political winds and public sentiment shifted against them. Europe's energy crisis ushered in by the war in Ukraine and the end of cheap Russia gas made coal too hard to quit for now. Even a government that includes the environmentalist-minded Green Party turned its back on them. Now, because the last farmer from that village moved out months ago, a court had reaffirmed the right of the authorities to forcibly remove these protesters. So they knew what was coming, and yet they stayed there. Why? Because unlike these right-wingers, they actually care. They actually care about the environment. They care about protecting these small towns in Germany. And we see these fossil fuel companies around the globe continue to throw their weight around and completely violate tribal sovereignty here in the United States for indigenous people, the water rights of citizens around the globe with fracking, and for people to stand up and take a stand knowing that there would be consequences, I think that that's really commendable. So rather than trying to turn this into some weird conspiracy, I wish that right-wingers would maybe do a little bit of research before making all of this conjecture online. But real people who care about these things know that what the activists did, it was commendable. For example, Steven Donziger tweeted out, this type of state repression of climate activists only strengthens the movement. Solidarity, Greta. And he knows. He saw firsthand how these companies, how these fossil fuel giants will destroy you if you get in their way. So what Greta Thunberg did here is commendable. She got arrested, put her body on the line, all to draw attention to this cause. And some people might even try to defend German authorities and say, well, look, I mean, they had their cheap coal from Russia taken away as an option. So now they have to do this, at least temporarily. But I'm sorry, I don't buy that. And this is kind of what the leader of the Green Party in Germany uh, is making in defense of this open coal pit expansion. Uh, that's the case that he's making anyways, to be clear. But you all had decades. These, these governments had decades to understand that the current way that we run our economy on fossil fuels and coal it's not sustainable so you don't just get to say oh my god we had the rug pulled out from under us so we have to do this now you knew that you had to get off of fossil fuels and yet you did nothing and now they're desperate and they're rushing but these activists are trying to speak truth to power and remind them that this is not sustainable so I don't know what else to say about this story. I think that Greta Thunberg did a great thing. And even though a lot of uh, right-wingers hate her for some reason, I think that that's honestly evidence that she's very effective because they wouldn't spend so much tr time trying to tear her down had she not been such an effective communicator for the cause of climate activists. It's because she's so influential that they make her a target. And that's why they're gonna continue to concoct these bizarre conspiracy theories about her. It's because unlike these right-wing influencers, Greta Thunberg is actually a threat to the status quo. Whereas they're the individuals who are licking the boots of these fossil fuel companies who wanna continue to ravage the planet for their own personal gain. So the person who's speaking out against that that's the person who's being subversive. That's the person who's going against the establishment, not the tools who are defending these powerful interests. I really think that the reason why his scandal, and, and, you know, people shout about it, they do things, but nobody really cares is because of how he looks. Sure. Oh. There's a certain, it's the big black glasses, the Mr. Peabody glasses and the sort of doughy countenance and that hair is a little bit not 
full. It's not gone. It's just everything about him is screams of just mediocrity. He's not obese. He's not skinny. He's just, he's everything in the middle. And I have to say, when I, when I watch him now on the floor trying to interact with his new Republican brethren, it looks like one of those movies, like prison movies, where they yell like fish. Like it's like, <laughs> fresh meat! Hey, fresh meat! Like he's got that look on his face like, I, I'm going to have to join the Aryan gang because the Spanish gang is threatening me. So yeah. can I hang out with you fellas? Like he doesn't ever look like he belongs. No, he's always on the outside. He looks like... He just had to give up a carton of smokes to get to keep his muffin. Yeah. That's that's what it that's what he looks like to me. Maybe he'll undergo like a makeover and come back with kind of like a leathery looking face and a crazy haircut. That guy's got baby's bottom written all over him. He does. <laughs> he just seems like he would be a treat to wrestle. That took an unexpected turn. <laughs> You know what I mean? You're just trying to feel strong. No, no, I don't know what you mean. He'd be a treat to wrestle. All right. Stand by it. <laughs> I think I think a little slippery and squishy, but okay. He really, to me, it looks like his mom drops him off at Congress and like kisses him on the cheek. And he's like, mom, don't. Like, Matt Drop Gates is going to see me. Drop me off a few blocks in front of it. Yeah. All right. By the way, that's not my mom. That's Princess Diana. Right. Everything about him screams mediocrity. Yeah, I'll say. That was a hilarious, albeit pretty astute observation about George Santos from Jon Stewart. And looking at it through that lens, it actually makes sense. Maybe that kind of explains why he's such a pathological liar. Perhaps he's deeply insecure. Although I'm not here to psychoanalyze him, but Jon Stewart goes on to make a really poignant point about individuals like George Santos. And I think that what he says is actually really important. He kind of issues a warning about Santos and individuals like him, that even though there's so much ridiculousness surrounding these types of folks, that doesn't mean that we should underestimate them because they still indeed pose a danger. Mediaite reports, Stewart still issued a warning about Santos tying the Republican to Donald Trump and cautioning people against making the same mistake he made and how seriously he took the former president. Absurdity, Stewart argued, is where the real danger can be. Quote, the thing we have to be careful of, and I always caution myself on this and I ran into this trouble with Trump, is we cannot mistake absurdity for lack of danger because it takes people with no shame to do shameful things, he said. Now, I'm guilty of making this mistake as well. I, too, downplayed the threat of Donald Trump because it's hard not to when somebody is just so cartoonishly ridiculous and clownish. So it's hard to not look at them and laugh. But I think that in the post-Trump era, we should learn that underestimating these types of people who are overly ridiculous and clownish, we do that at our own peril. So I don't believe that we should underestimate George Santos. That's not to say that we should overestimate the threat that he poses, but I think that we need to adequately estimate the threat that he poses. And he absolutely poses a threat to Americans in this position of power because almost every single thing about him has been a lie. He completely made up his resume. He didn't embellish as he claims. He made up his resume. He made up his educational background, his career, elements of his life, playing sports. Um, and it goes so much deeper and more nefarious than that. And that's really what we're still learning about George Santos. So 
the first thing that I want to touch on is his name and whether or not George Santos even is his real name. And there's evidence that he went by other names, and this was even kind of confirmed by older footage of himself going by different names. First and foremost, though, journalist Marissa Cabas reports, I just spoke by phone with Eula Rochard, a Brazilian drag queen who was friends with George Santos when he lived near Rio. She said everyone knew him as Anthony, never George, or by his drag name, Katara, and confirms this photo is from a 2008 drag show at Ikarai Beach. So that photograph right there kind of throws doubt on the question about his sexuality because, I mean, I, I guess you could te technically be a straight drag queen, but I think that that's pretty rare. Although he was married to a woman up until 2019, so I'm assuming that there was this period in his life where he went through denial and maybe was an ex-gay. I don't know, but I would love for a journalist to look into that. Either way, when it comes to him going by a different name, this was a claim corroborated by his ex-roommate. Let's listen. Um, You know, his mother was um, a housekeeper in, in Manhattan, and it just didn't seem feasible for him supposedly to, to come from all this uh, generational wealth, if you will, and what, it, why is why are you doing the things that you're doing? It, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, well um, he, was, he had made allegations that he came from generational wealth, and you're saying that his mother was a housekeeper in the city, in, in Manhattan. Yeah. Um, so people are going to wonder, and also, you know, he, he, you knew him at, through another name, right? The last name, DeVolder. Yes, I'm, I've, I've always known him as Anthony DeVolder. I've yeah. never known him as George Santos. Um, I was actually quite surprised. I guess he, you know, went by his middle name and his mother's name. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've always known him as, as Anthony DeVolder. Now, I had to include the other claims made by his ex-roommate because you can almost see that based on the way he's describing Santos, lying was just a personality trait. It was deeply embedded in his identity. He had to lie about everything, or I should say lack thereof with regard to his identity because he didn't have an identity. So he just made up these identities and everything about him is synthetic. He's so fake. And in a newly resurfaced video from a 2019 Grifty Walk Away event where ex-leftists announced that they're leaving the Democratic Party in very Grifty fashion, he was there and he asked the question to Blair White. And we'll talk about the question that he asks because it's just so ridiculous, but he refers to himself not as George Santos. Oh, you gotta be here. So my name is Anthony DeVolder. Um, I'm a New York City resident. I've recently founded a group called United for Trump, so if you guys want to follow, that would be awesome. My question's directed for both Blair and um, Brandon. Well, Brandon's an idol to all of us. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but Blair, I, yes. I have a question. How do you think that as a trans woman and a conservative, you can help educate other trans people from not having to follow the narrative that the media and the Democrats put forward, and how can Brandon incorporate that into Walk Away in more, more in debt? That's my question. Hi, Blair. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I want to know how you can dupe more trans people into supporting a party that wants them dead. 
these people are so ridiculous. Blair White is a clown. The other individuals at that event, they're clowns. And these are grifters. This is all about making money for them. But I've just got to point out, I can't imagine what that room smelled like because, goddamn, I would want to be nowhere near that event. Either way, like the name and whether or not he goes by George Santos, that seems relatively benign compared to other things that he's lied about and scams that he's run, to be clear. But we're finding out more lies still till this day. For example, as Mediaite reports, George Santos claims he attended Met Gala and commissioned art for museums in resurfaced interview. And one of the most sick and twisted accusations is the following. Vice News reports, George Santos accused of stealing thousands from dying dogs GoFundMe. A veteran says Santos stole $3,000 from a fundraiser for his sick service dog. And we're going to dive into the article, but I just want to pause right there. This is where it really gets nefarious because it shows you how this isn't just about him being a, a pathological liar. I don't, again, want to psychoanalyze him too much here, but I, I think that this tells me that this man has got to be a sociopath. The things that he's lied about here, the things that he's done to hurt people, I feel like any normal person would show at least a minimal amount of remorse, but we've seen none of that from George Santos. He is defiant, refuses to resign after Republicans in his own county are saying, we need you to resign. So he, he's not sorry. And the lies are one thing, but the scams that he's ran, the way that he's deceived people is downright sickening. Vice continues here. The veteran, 47-year-old Richard Osthoff, accused the freshman New York congressman Tuesday of setting up a GoFundMe to pay for medical treatment for his service dog, raising 3000 through it, and then disappearing with the money without handing over a cent. The dog then died months later without receiving treatment. Ostoff told Patch.com that after his dog Sapphire developed a stomach tumor in 2016, a veterinarian referred him to a guy who runs a pet charity. That man was Santos, who was then going by the name Anthony DeValder, and the charity was Friends of Pets United, according to Patch.com. Santos has claimed that the charity was a registered nonprofit, but the Internal Revenue Service has no record of the organization's existence, the New York Times reported in December. After the GoFundMe's goal was reached, Santos stopped answering my texts and calls, Ostoff told Patch.com. Ostoff posted on Facebook in November of 2016 that he was scammed by Anthony DeValder and that due to bad veterinary contacts and subterfuge regarding payment, Sapphire has not received veterinary care and her growth is three to four times bigger than it was when the campaign was fulfilled according to a screenshot published by Patch.com. And as the article mentioned, the dog ended up dying. Sapphire died in January of 2017 after people gave money to this cause to save this dog's life. Anthony DeValder or George Santos took the money and ran. And that's why I think that what name he used is important and it does come into play. Because when you look at this history of lies and scams, maybe he was forced to take on a new name and assume the name of George Santos because he scammed too many people as Anthony DeVolder. And I refer to scams in the plural because going back to his ex-roommate and also the name controversy and what he actually is named, well, he did apparently do more scams on GoFundMe. And he went by a third name as well. Let's listen. And I also knew him as uh, Anthony Zabrowski. So you knew that him. He, he, why did he say he had two names then? 
Well, he he used Zabrowski for his uh, Friends of Pets United, his um, uh, his GoFundMe, and he would say, "Oh well, you know, the, the Jews will give more if you're a Jew," and so that's the name he used for his GoFundMe's. And what was he having GoFundMe's for back then? Uh, his he had a uh, pet charity, Friends of Pets United. Uh, it was supposedly to um, help out with you know, sick animals and things like that. There's actually um, just an article released from um, uh, one of my reporters uh, who's been interviewing me a lot, uh, Jacqueline Sweet, about how he conned a a homeless military vet out of $3,000 for his uh, service dog. And yeah, he was... Did you, did he actually have a pet charity? Did, I mean, did he like, did he have a pet? he he did like dogs, yes, um, but he never had any um, any activity as far as taking animals to the vet or um, buying food or anything. When I went to visit him, when this ch- so-called charity was active, when and they were getting donations. So his roommate is implying that that wasn't the only scam that George Santos ran, and he went by a different name that was seemingly Jewish sounding in order to manipulate Jewish people into donating to his causes because he believed the stereotype that Jewish people would be more likely to donate to somebody with a Jewish sounding name. I mean, the man is truly off his rocker. I don't even know what to say about this. This is genuinely twisted so that's why john stewart's warning about george santos really resonated with me it's because somebody who's willing to do all of this should be nowhere near a position of power these people are indeed dangerous despite how cartoonishly clownish and evil they may be because somebody who could take from people create these scams try to raise money based off of this gut-wrenching story and then just cut and run That person should be nowhere near power because he is voting on legislation that will affect millions of people's lives. And when you see how cold-hearted he's been prior to his stint as a member of Congress, well, as a member of Congress, imagine the cruel legislation he's going to support. It's just sick and twisted, and he's got to resign, but he's not going to resign. So however he can be removed from Congress. I think that Democrats should pursue that route because Republicans aren't going to do anything about this. Kevin McCarthy has given him a committee assignment. So this is just going to be a member of Congress, but he should not be there because this is not just somebody who is a pathological liar. This is a dangerous, potential sociopathic individual who should not be accepted by Congress or society in general. He should be outcasted because this is a freak and a gross person. So I take it that Candace Owens isn't necessarily the best person to confide in if you're going through a difficult time. And I say this because, well, listen for yourself. Do not consider yourselves wrong for going to therapy. I once went to therapy. I had to try it out because my parents were getting divorced and I was dragged into it. I hated it. It wasn't for me. But it is for some people. And I do suppose that some people are coming out and being better people. But on the whole, as we move toward this society, that believe that believes that feelings trump facts. The facts don't matter. That the feelings are so important that we have to ignore the facts. We have to assume that the majority of the therapy sessions that are happening are reflecting that, right? That you have people sitting in a chair 
telling people that their feelings are all that matter, that no matter what they do in this world, it's perfectly okay because of some tragedy or upset that they suffer when they were five years old. And what has it produced? Well, it's produced a society of men like Prince Harry and women like Adele who overshare, who tell us way too much. And it's not a society that I want to live in. I want to live in a society like the one that my grandfather lived in. And I tell people this all the time. I never saw my grandfather cry a day in his life, even when I knew he was positively destroyed and heartbroken when we lost my grandmother, surprisingly, right? A woman that he was married to from a time that he was 17, the woman that he dedicated his entire life to and built his entire life around. My grandfather did not cry at her funeral. He was one of those men that believed that no matter what you were going through, you let it burn in your chest, right? And a lot of men don't like that now. Men don't know. Men need to be vulnerable. You actually don't need to be vulnerable in public. You don't need to be vulnerable in public. We need to see examples of strength everywhere. Strong women and strong men. And of course, we all assume that you have moments of vulnerability. We all do. All I'm saying is that we don't want to hear about it. Stop. Button it up. Let it burn in your chest. And that's all I have to say about that. Okay, Boomer. I don't know what else to say. That is a very boomer-esque rant. And I'm not necessarily referring to the boomer generation, but the boomer mentality where you have to button yourself up and be proper and never show your emotions for reasons. It doesn't make sense why she's coming to that conclusion. She didn't adequately argue why it's intrinsically more valuable for us to all hide our emotions. I mean, that seems pretty unhealthy, and we'll get to what the experts say in a moment. But I just first have to address the irony that flew right over her head. She said this, quote, We're moving towards a society that believes that feelings trump facts. The facts don't matter, that the feelings are so important that we have to ignore the facts. Yeah, I agree, Candace. The problem is that you're part of the problem and you don't realize that you're the worst messenger possible because you are the individual who operates almost exclusively on vibes. When was the last time we actually saw a fact-based analysis from Candace Owens? I mean, even if she took a data set and completely misconstrued the meaning of it and the findings from a particular study, when did she even pretend to be operating in facts? This is the same individual who says she doesn't believe in climate change. She also said that atheists don't exist. That's interesting, right? She also claimed that Bob Saget died from the COVID vaccine. On top of that, I wrote them down. Trump won the 2020 election. It was stolen from him. She also hilariously said that doctors intentionally killed people in hospitals during COVID to fluff up the numbers. And during that same rant, she said that the use of ventilators is questionable for people who need oxygen. So she's... <laughs> She's she's really reaching uh, and she's trying to make sure that everyone knows that her feelings, that is absolutely superior to facts. On top of that, uh, she claimed that Kanye West is not anti-Semitic. To be fair, though, that was before he did the I love Hitler rant. Uh, she also said that gay teachers were predators if they didn't hide their identities from students. I mean, these are all things that she said that I've talked about on my channel. So... For somebody who literally just concocts things and bases her political analysis off of her feelings, 
You're not the right person, Candace, to be making that claim. Now, she adds, we have to assume a majority of the therapy sessions happening are reflecting of, well, this idea that the therapist is just validating all of the emotions and putting emotions and feelings above facts. And Dr. Candace Owens knows this because um, uh, she took psych 101 and got a b minus therefore she is qualified to say not only what is happening in these closed door sessions between therapists and their patients but she's able to basically make this claim that therapists aren't treating their patients appropriately these licensed educated therapists they're not doing it to candace owens liking is that so candace well why don't you join the field Go, go get a degree, get your license and practice therapy. And we'll see how well your patients fare compared to just the average therapist, because odds are 99% of them would be much worse after seeing you. Now, she says, I never saw my grandfather cry a day in his life, even at his wife's funeral. That just made me really sad. That made me really sad. Um, first of all, it doesn't matter if your grandfather cries or doesn't cry. It doesn't matter if human beings cry or don't cry in public. Every single human being cries. I mean, I don't get why there's some people who just want others to deny human nature. Evangelicals have this problem where, you know, you, you should repress your sexual feelings. If you're gay, hide that, you know, no sex until marriage. But that's part of nature. These are things that are natural. It's not unnatural to express emotion. So I, I just don't understand why it's better if you don't cry, if you hide your emotions. I mean, she hasn't, I think, sufficiently demonstrated the case there. She claims that it makes you essentially appear more tougher, but the appearance of toughness or masculinity or strength doesn't really matter because it doesn't negate from the fact that every single human being on this planet has at one point cried. That's our first thing that happens when we come into this world. We cry. So I just don't get why you're somehow inferior or a weaker person if you cry. And I say that as someone who I also try to withhold my emotions. I mean, for one, I'm not necessarily the most emotional person in the world, but I subconsciously, you know, try to withhold my feelings whenever I feel the urge to cry. Um, and I don't know why I do that. It doesn't make me a better person if I don't cry in front of someone. It's just, you know, I, I think that these things have been embedded in us from society where, you know, men aren't supposed to show emotions. And if they are, they're perceived to be effeminate or, or weak. And even women now, they have to be overly strong to compensate for the patriarchal norms and they have to withhold their emotions. Folks, at the end of the day, we're all people. We have emotions, we have feelings, we all shit. I just don't get why she thinks it's virtuous to suppress these emotions. Her grandfather is still the same person even if she did see him cry. It doesn't make him inherently better or worse if she does or doesn't see him cry. And it's bizarre to me that she thinks that that would somehow, I guess, change her perception of her grandfather. But let's get to the experts because Candace Owens, as she stated in that clip, cares very much about 
facts. So what did the experts say? Well, insiders Lindsay Dodgson spoke to one expert, a psychologist about this, and she was very clear. Quote, if you put a lid on a boiling pot, eventually the contents will rise to the top and spill over. Human emotions are no different. If we push our feelings down and down and try to avoid them, eventually they will explode out more fiercely than before. This is one main reason people sometimes refuse to tap into their feelings, according to psychologist Perpetua. Tua Neo. She told Insider, people can be over-rational because they think the alternative is someone who cries all the time, is incredibly angry and erratic, and can't control themselves. When you ask somebody, why can't you trust your feelings, they'll tell you because last time I lost my temper, everything went to pot, Neo said. Actually, it's this whole vicious cycle that happens when we oppress our feelings. If we bottle things up, they don't just go away. Emotions will stay down until we physically can't contain them anymore more. Then they'll burst out fiercer than before. And it won't just be that one feeling. It will be everything else that's been thrown on top of it since. For some people, it can be years or even decades or repressed experiences. When it explodes, you do things you regret, said Neo. You spend too much money on things you don't like. You sleep with the wrong people you hate, things like that. And afterwards, you say it was your emotions that made you do it. And so Dr. Neo argues that trying to understand your emotions and grapple with them rather than trying to run away with them or suppress them leads to much better mental health outcomes. So um, as somebody who took Psych 101 myself and passed with an A, I guess I can psychoanalyze Candace Owens in the same way that she analyzed all of these therapists and say maybe her bottling up all of her emotions is leading to that pot exploding uh, or the lid exploding off of the boiling pot, I should say, and it's manifesting itself in these bizarre conspiracy theories when she has no evidence for these weird claims that she says oftentimes on her show, but yet has the audacity to ironically claim that she values facts over feelings. Look, I don't get why she comes to these conclusions or where she comes up with these conspiracy theories, but I've got to say, on the subject of therapy, Candace. I hope your insurance covers it because you need it. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.